good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So let's turn again our eyes to the Word of God, to the Psalm 126. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. And then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. And the Lord hath done great things for us. We're off, we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaths with him. I've mentioned a few times in the course of this brief study that there is some uncertainty with regards to the timing of these psalms. When were they written? When were they compiled together? It is a psalter within the psalter, but there is uncertainty as to the period of time in which they fit. I think we can be certain that some of the Psalms were written after the return from the Babylonian exile. You take Psalm 137, of course it's not a, a song of degrees, but it shows us the principle here. It says there, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And so there you have an example of a Psalm that, that is penned at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and again, that important period of history in the history of Israel. I don't think I need to say much with regards to the history for you all uh, here today. You will recall that gross sin led to God giving the northern tribes into the hand of the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, uh, more godly over the years, turned away from God and followed the pattern of the north and ended up being taken into captivity in Babylon. You might think of, of Daniel. Again, you have the account of Daniel being taken away from the land. That was the time of the captivity in Babylon. There were, of course, in the history of God's people, other times of partial captivity. You think of the, the maid of Naaman's wife taken from her own land into a, a strange land at the time of Elisha. Yet, having said all of that, I think this particular psalm sits well within the context of the Babylonian captivity. That captivity did not last forever. Seventy years and God raised up King Cyrus who released the people to return. Now listen to the words of Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying thus saith Cyrus king of Persia. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in, Ju in Judah. Who is there among you of his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And so there was a time of restoration. 
Clearly, God raised up Cyrus, and the people were given that permission to return to their own land. Indeed, as we just read, to build and rebuild the temple. You would think that all the people would rush back home. But that was not the case. And thus we read of three separate phases of the return. They did not all come back at once. Ezra chapter 2, we read of the return under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Ezra 7 and 8, you read of the return under Ezra. And then in Nehemiah, you read of the return under Nehemiah. Three separate phases in the return of God's people from Babylon back into their own land. Now, why is it important to establish this? Well, I think that history fits with our understanding of Psalm 126. Um, when we understand the history, it, it perhaps opens up this psalm for us in a particular way. And the clue is found in verse number 4. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. In verse 1, we have the joy of the people in the Lord returning their captivity. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dreamed. We're off, we are glad, verse number 3. Great joy. And then in verse 4, I think in verse 4 we see these people engaging in prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. And thus it may well be the case that those who have known the blessing of God in the restoration from captivity are praying for those who are remaining in Babylon that God would so work in their hearts that they would also come back and return. It is clear in Ezra that only a remnant returned from captivity. There were those who returned and others who stayed. And it seems to be the case that the returners were a spiritual group. We heard the heartbeat of that group in Psalm 137. They have a burden for the worship of God. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And we see that in Ezra, the restoration of the temple was their first priority. The walls weren't built until Nehemiah comes back. And so the temple came first. Those who returned to the start were a spiritual, godly community walking in the will of God, being restored spiritually as well as physically. It is clear it was the Lord's will for them to return. God's providence had opened the door. He had raised up Cyrus, his decree of the return, clearly under the control of God. Therefore, those who returned were a group of obedient and godly saints. We see a people who are rejoicing in what God has done in their lives. We see a people who have burdened for others that God would do the same for others in verse number 4. We see people resting on the promises of God. And so what I think we should look at in this psalm is really looking at it as a testimony of a godly group of obedient saints. What is their testimony? And as we think about it, let's, let's look at it under, under really four, four words. The first one is the word restoration. There is, first of all, a restoration unto obedience. It was the work of God. Verse 1, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. Verse number three, the Lord hath done great things 
for us. Cyrus was a man raised up by God to do God's will. Very simply, God works in this world to perform his will. And he is always working in this world to perform his will. He's raising up kings and casting kings down. He's raising up kingdoms, Babylon, and the Medo-Persians, the Persian Empire, of which Cyrus is now the leader. All of these kingdoms are in the hand of God. And we must always live in the confidence that God is working in this world to perform his will. J.C. Ryle says this, The heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. That's a remarkable statement. A true Christian, again, it's a man's opinion, but it's it's an opinion based upon the Word of God. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king and potentate and Augustus a Cyrenius, a Darius, a Cyrus, a Sennacherib, every king as a creature who, with all his power, can do nothing but what God allows, and nothing which is not carrying out God's will. That is biblical understanding of the affairs of the world. We must never see the rulers be they North Korean or be they North American, we should never see the rulers of this world exercising power outside the power of God. They cannot do it. God is working in the performance of His will. It was His will that there would be a restoration of God's people to the land. And Cyrus is raised up for that very purpose. On another level, regarding this matter of restoration, we should understand that God works to bring his people into the paths of obedience. We value good government. We value good education. But only God brings people into true obedience. Moral and social reform are helpful. They are given of God and his common grace to, to restrain sin and to allow the freedom of the gospel. But all moral and social restraint will not bring people into true obedience unless God is at work. It is God who turned again the captivity, and it was God who worked in those people's hearts to recognize what God was doing and to say, the Lord had done great things for us. Not only did God work in Cyrus, he worked in the heart of his people so that when they heard the call from Cyrus, they said, here am I. I will go and I will return to the land. So there is a restoration unto obedience. In the second place, there is a reaction to this restoration. And we can see perhaps just five, five things that are the consequences out of this particular act of restoration. There is amazement. We were like them that dream. God goes beyond what the people could have imagined. 
It was beyond our comprehension what God was doing. But it wasn't a dream. It was real. God actually had done this. Cyrus, Persian leader, had issued a decree. Go back to your own country. More than that, rebuild the temple. And they were sent away, not empty-handed, but laden with presents. We were truly like them that dream. I, I, I wonder, I, I delight in this. God delights in surprising us with the greatness of his works. Amen. We limit our prayers. We expect God to do so much. But he delights in bringing glory to his name by doing beyond what we can ask or think. We expect in the year to come that perhaps God will save one or two. But perhaps to save a multitude. But God is able to do that whereby we will rub our eyes. We'll sit in a prayer meeting rubbing our eyes and going, what has God just done? That is our God. May God deliver us from the unbelief that doubts a God who delights in doing an abundance of good things. There is amazement, there is joy, and then was our mouth filled with laughter. Whereof we are glad, verse number three. I think the sense there in verse two, then was our mouth filled with laughter, is sort of natural, spontaneous joy. That situation where you're just so overcome with gladness that you, you can't help beginning to, to enter into laughter. It's a right and proper response. It is not God's will that his people be downcast. He expects us to respond to his works in delight. Joy. And out of that joy in the third place there comes praise. And our tongue with singing. Singing always arises in the heart of joy. A lack of joy will lead to poor singing. And when we know joy in our soul, we will delight in singing the praises of God. The fourth thing is that God is glorified. Verse number three, or verse number two. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. God's name is exalted among the heathen. In the fifth place, there is then prayer for others. I've mentioned verse 4 already. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. The reference to the streams in the south is a reference to the Negev River that went very dry. And then at times of abundance of rain, it ran over with great fertility in the area. It is a prayer for revival. It's a prayer for God to continue what he started. Turn again our captivity. Do it again, O Lord. Do it again. Do it again. You've done so much, but, but do it again. In the heart of those that have been touched of God, there is this burden for God to work again. Prayer for others. So, there is restoration. There is a reaction to that restoration. And in the third place, there is the reality. The reality of this obedience. I believe that verses 5 and 6 present the challenges that God's people faced upon their return to the land. The land had been decimated. The agricultural industry depended upon working the land throughout the seasons. One seed time depended upon the previous harvest. Now they've returned and had to start from scratch. 
And there were times of sowing in tears, times of sorrow and times of weeping. They were obeying God's will, but their sowing and the bearing of precious seed involved tears and weeping and sorrow. It was not easy to do the will of God. And the Bible never presents a rose-tinted view of Christian obedience. God restored the people. But to live in their restored blessing would be difficult. You see, I think that's the context here from verse number 4. They're praying for others to follow them, understanding how difficult it is to do the will of God, but holding on to the promise that God will bless them in their obedience. You're staying in Babylon, dear friends, they may have said. Yes, we will sow in tears. Yes, we will bring our, bring our, our, our seed in weeping. But God will bless us and we'll come again with rejoicing. I think we should also note that the tears of God's people are associated with prayer. 2 Kings 20, verse number 5, the Lord says to Hezekiah, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. I think of Christ Jesus. There is an association with tears and prayer in the Scriptures. Christ, of course, just a passing comment, who is the ultimate example of one who sows in tears and shall reap with joy. He sows his tears in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes on to suffer in the cross, whereby the seed of his life is buried in the ground, because if it will bring forth fruit, it must be buried, it must die. And then he, in resurrected glory, he, he reaps in joy. Uh, the point I'm making is, is very simple. These people, they return to the land, and in a prayerful dependence upon God, in their affliction, in their trials, they called unto God with wet prayers. The afflictions of living in obedience to God resulted in them praying with tears as they literally sowed precious seed. That's the reality of a life of obedience to God. But in the last place, there is a reward for obedience. When the people were obedient, when they were prepared to be faithful through the tears, God promised to bless. The returning captives did enjoy harvest. Nehemiah 12 refers to the offerings to the priests from the fruit of the land. God did honor their sowing in tears. They did reap, and they brought their first fruits to the priests in accordance with the command of God. The application of this psalm has gone in various ways. Understandably, it's often preached in the area of evangelism because of the common picture that is used of sowing and reaping. We sow the seed. It's said we water with tears, and God is pleased to give the increase. And undoubtedly, that is a general principle in the Word of God. We are. We are sowing the precious seed of the Word of God. But the promise of this psalm, I believe, has a, has a more general application to God's people and to God's work. I believe we can apply this in a New Testament context in an individual capacity. Christ has said to ascend up on high, Ephesians chapter 4, and to lead captivity captive. 
Christ in his work of redemption releases the sinner from their captivity to sin and themselves and the devil. They are free, they are redeemed by the blood of Christ, and they are set free to serve God. There is a restoration of captivity in our conversion. And in that setting, you think of the words of Galatians chapter 6. Turn there, please, and then we'll draw this to a close. Galatians chapter 6. For here you will see that the, the, the metaphor of sowing and reaping is used not so much about our evangelism as about our obedience. Galatians 6 verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But look what it says. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It's in the context of living the Christian life, of living spiritually and not carnally. If we live carnally, we reap corruption. If we live spiritually by the power of the Spirit, we shall reap eternity. You see, when you think back to the Psalm 126, surely you can see here your own personal testimony. It is God and God alone who brought us into obedience. The Lord turned again our captivity. We were freed from our sin and set free to serve Christ. God did it by giving us a new heart. He used means. He used the affairs of this world to guide us into truth. The preaching of the word, particular providences, whatever it might be. It was God who had done great things for us. But off we are glad. In the new covenant we are promised a new heart. A new heart that they may walk in my statutes. That we walk in the paths of obedience. God gives a new heart. It's his work and his work alone. So that we respond with amazement. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We wonder, why me? We were like them that dream. Perhaps you look back at your conversion. I look back at mine. I, I often compare two dates. I compare the beginning of April, I compare the beginning of September, and I wonder, what just happened? God came in in miraculous, amazing grace and turned my captivity. Or if I was like them that dream, and my mouth was filled with laughter, and my tongue was singing, and I said, the Lord had done great things for me, there is joy in the Lord. There's a song of praise. There's a burden for others. May others come to know what I've known. There is, there is in that path of Christian obedience that mixture of joy and tears. It is not easy. As we saw in Romans chapter 5, we can rejoice in our tribulations. The Lord said, through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom. Those that will live godly in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3, they shall suffer persecution. And thus, as we live the Christian life, there are times of tears. There are times when we weep 
Now, the ungodly around us, the rivers of waters, they flow down our eyes or from our eyes because they keep not thy law. At times, we have the tears of Peter. The Lord looked upon him. He wept bitterly. As we walk in this earth, there are times of tears when we realize that we've, we've let the Lord down. There are times of tears when we walk in the path of obedience and our own family stay in captivity. We come back to the land to serve God. We seek to establish the temple of Christ and Him crucified. But our family, they stay. They stay in Babylon. And we weep. We seek to labor for the Lord. We labor for the Lord in the context of, of our evangelism. We do. And the application is here. And we weep at the ungodly around us and their hardness to the things that we love. We sow in tears. But we have a promise that when we bear the precious seed of Christ in His Word, when we seek to live by the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, we shall indeed come with rejoicing. And the promise is, He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, and let us not be weary in well-doing. Though the ground may be hard, though you've got to put the spade in deep and turn the hard ground over and seek to cultivate the ground, though there was not in that spiritual picture a hardness that may lead to weariness, let's not be weary. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I think it's a wonderful psalm. And I say, if, if the context of Babylon is only illustration, it is precious illustration. God's people obeyed and they did so with difficulty. But God was pleased to honor and bless their labors. And if we live for Him in this day, the same God has also promised to bless us. Do we believe in this God? Or have we neglected to believe in the God who did these great things? And may God help us to apply the word tonight for his name's sake. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.